welcome to Commonplace Expertise. I'm here with Dr. Leah DiBello. Dr. Leah DiBello is the CEO, President and Director of Research of WTRI, which stands for Workplace Technology Research Inc. She is a cognitive scientist as well as a business person. In the late 2000s, Dr. DiBello discovered in an NSF-funded study that all great business people share a common mental model of business, and that mental model can be used for all sorts of interesting things, including the assessment of business expertise, which she did. She was the principal inventor of something called the Future View Profiler. In more recent years, Dr. DiBello is more well-known for her work on accelerated expertise. She published a book with a few other researchers in 2016 with that very title. She and her team have created something they call the strategic rehearsal. And this actually stemmed from some work she did during her PhD, where it was called the OpSim. What the strategic rehearsal allows WTRI to do is to accelerate the acquisition of expertise, particularly business expertise in the businesses that they consult for. And her training interventions have been used in industries as diverse as biotech, pharma, manufacturing, financial services, mining, and others. I hope to talk about many of these ideas during this podcast, if we have the time. But first, uh, let's welcome uh, Dr. Leah DiBello to the podcast. Leah, it's so good to have you. Thank you. I think a good place to start is to start with your story. Tell us a bit about yourself. How did you come to do what you do? Um, well, I think I've actually always done what I do. I mean, I've, I've never really had another kind of job. And I think I've always been pretty obsessed with cognition and cognitive reorganization and how people construct meaning and, and particularly with expertise. I think that the reason that I study expertise in business is because I come from a business family of a fourth generation entrepreneur so I understand business pretty well and I I also believe that business is a really good place to look at cognition and action you know it's it's what makes the world work it's it's people solving complex problems and then particularly in the 1980s and 90s with the influx of comp- complex technology it really challenged our notions of mental models it used to be believed that people would develop to a certain point uh, after they graduated from school, they would get to a, a certain point mentally, you know, they mature and they become professional or expert in a particular field. And then it was kind of downhill from there. We learned when enterprise technology entered uh, the workplace that people actually had to reinvent their mental models at least 12 times before they retired. Mm-hmm. And that, and now I think it's even more than that. I think that it's really pushed the limits of cognitive agility. Maybe highlighted cognitive agility as the new basic skill and showed us that human beings actually never stop changing and learning. And, and then there was some recent research in the late 90s that even our brains... It was assumed that our brains lose cells at a certain point in our teens and basically shrink from there. That we, we now know that's not true. If you continue to learn and do complex tasks, you keep those cells and you, you renew, you actually grow new neurons all your life. So the adaptability, the flexibility, the neural profile has changed quite a bit. It's very interesting. And it shows up 
probably more in business than anywhere else. So it's mm-hmm. fun to, to look at. The other reason I like to look at business is because you can tell whether you're successful or not. You know, when you, no, I'm serious. When you do research on 18 undergraduates that happen to be in your class, you don't, <laughs> you don't really know if the experiment worked. But if you double the stock price and market cap of a multi-billion dollar company, it's, it's kind of hard to say that would have happened by chance, you know. And when you do it 53 times, it's pretty clear that it wouldn't happen by chance. So it's a good way to test and validate your science. So this is a good segue into the sort of the, the mental model that you extracted. As far as I can tell, and I've dug into quite a bit of your work, you've never told the story behind the study of how, you know, when you extracted the mental model, this was like, what, 2008, 2009? It was a four-year NSF-funded study. Could you say a bit about, like, the story, but how, you know, what was that like? How do you do it? Well, when you work with a lot of companies, you start to realize that there's a lot of similarity and that business, sort of like chess or any other system, is a closed system. And that that, that... the reason that people be- can become experts in any system is because it's a closed system of rules, even though it's very complicated. Like, for example, chess masters, they, they can be extremely different from each other, but they all recognize each other, and they all play on the same board with the same pieces. Business experts, we realized when we, we did a study, actually for IBM, on what made their superstars superstars. A lot of that is confidential, but, 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 the, but the scientific findings are not, which is that regardless of what industry they worked in, because these were IBM you know, business consultants that worked in all the industries that IBM serves, what they had in common was that they understood the businesses that they were serving. And they all were very similar to each other, even though they worked in different industries. So then we started looking at our other customers who were, were very high performers, leaders in business, and we started basically sorting them. Like, who are the one-trick ponies? Who got lucky, basically? And who are the ones that, even in the down markets, like the dot-com bubble, you know, and the, the various crashes, like in 2008, who rebounded or saw what was coming and were immune to it in the way that they ran their business. What do they all have in common? And we knew from other work we'd done with businesses that businesses in general only have about three or four what we call organizing forces and that people who are talented in a particular business are very good at managing the three or four organizing forces. Now, that's lower down. And, you know, it could be an artifact of, of us. You know, human beings can only manage so much in their working memory. We may, business may have evolved to be only so complex, where it can only be managed by three or four organizing forces with a lot of detail attached to each of the forces. But we kind of simplify it into principles. At the very highest level, we realized that world leaders 
in business, simplify it along that triad. They Now, each leg of the stool can be very complicated, but they always look at all three of those legs. What's the capital market doing? What's the, what's the market doing, which is basically demand? And what's the supply environment like? So let's take an example. Sometimes after a, after a particularly dramatic economic event, the price of capital changes and access to capital changes. Well, this creates very different opportunities in the supply side. And a very talented world, world leader in business will see that right away and start changing the strategy for the business, sometimes to take advantage of this. The market... When goods are scarce, people will pay almost, people who still have money will pay almost anything. So they understand how the, not just the, the three legs separately, but how they affect each other dynamically. And they also understand it in a, in a, the way that it can play out globally, like when there's government issues. So, and, you know, when there are upheavals, or when countries emerge as, as wanting to play on the big stage, capital can get very available, for example. Mm-hmm. And talented business leaders will take advantage of that to grow their businesses. So they're always playing all three legs. And a one-trick pony tends to be somebody who's good at one of them, usually good at sales. Huh. And it's... We have a little joke around the office that, you know, that they sell everything for, you know, for more than they, the, for more than it costs to make it, or, and they make it up in volume or something like that. I mean, sometimes they, or they sell everything for, you know, they sell everything short. I mean, it's funny what people do, and they think it makes sense, and they don't understand why they're growing broke at the speed of light. The more they sell, right? So it's, but they're really good at sales. So they do that and they have no idea what it's doing to their operation. Oh, interesting. Have you ever seen examples of transfer, right? So if, if good business people have, they understand all three legs of the stool, of the triad, and how that triad is expressed is very different depending on the industry. Have you ever seen in, in your work with so many businesses examples of transfer where maybe they're a conglomerate and they had to start in some subsidiary and then they, you know, move into a different but adjacent in the industry, right? Does Is there like, is it easier for them to become masters or? Uh... It depends. I mean, I think that the most transferable skill is capital. Uh, people who are very good at capital understanding how capital markets work and availability of cash, that's pretty transferable. But I would say the hardest leg is supply, or supply, the, the operations part. And most really talented guys or women have a, a very talented operations person as a partner. Because that can be hard, and it can be very... For a multinational company, it can vary a lot depending on which country you're getting your your labor and goods from. Oh, this makes a ton of sense. There, there's this book called The Outsiders by William 
Thorndike, and he basically profiles CEOs who are very good capital allocators, right? So capital, like of the triad. But every single one of them had good operators on the side, like a very right. strong second in command. So they could focus on the capital allocation and somebody else would keep the right. you know, the wheels turning. Right, exactly. So it, you've mentioned in the past that, well, in, in your chapter in the Oxford Handbook, which is actually how I found you, I, I saw like a, in the table of contents, I was like, oh, expertise in business. And then I would turn, you know, to that Very chapter. Very nice and, of you to read it. <laughs> <laughs> it was, I mean, it was, it was, it was like in the middle of like, expertise in STEM, expertise in what do you call it, transportation and cybersecurity. And it was like, oh, expertise in business, right? And I opened the chapter and my, I think my jaw fell open as I was reading the chapter. For, for anyone who's listening to this, if you can get your hands on the Oxford Handbook of Expertise, and it's a very expensive, very heavy book. Um, it's uh, a doorstop. Yeah. <laughs> it is, I have it behind <laughs> me. Uh, Leah's ch- chapter is pretty much like a summation of, of everything she's found in her career. And, and in that chapter, you mentioned that business expertise in an executive team is a form of distributed cognition, mm-hmm. right? So... I'm curious, have you seen instances where no one person in the management team, you know, is an expert at all three legs of the stool, but the company still does well anyway? Yeah, right. Then, then yes, in fact, usually that's the case. And it's, it's one of the, one of the good things about the profiler, the instrument that we developed is that it collects data on the individuals and the teams. So you can put all the data together and develop the heat maps, and then you can map out how the blind spots are distributed among the teams, and then you can change the roles around. We had a case with a biotech company where the only person that understood the real problem was in the wrong job. And when we presented that data to them, they saw it instantly that the reason that they were selling everything at a discount and making more and more of it and losing money on every sale is because the only one who had the acumen to see that was in the wrong job. And he literally wouldn't have had the visibility into that problem. So we, we basically gave him different information. And yet some of the other executives had the relationships with the customers that were needed, you know, they customers trusted them, etc. So you need that as well, right? But you need needed somebody counting the beans back home to see that you could actually afford to make these deals. And so we we reshuffled the deck there too. And then another customer in Europe that was was very similar. We had a CEO that was extremely brilliant, who saw everything coming with the subprime mortgage crisis, tried to warn the company, nobody listened to him, and the rest of his executive team had the same blind spot. It was kind of creepy, actually. They all had the wrong theory of what was going to happen, and it showed their, their, their profile results were almost all identical. And they worked with an executive coach, again, to reshuffle the deck and put people in different jobs and have different accountabilities. In Europe, a lot of the, particularly the older, more established companies, the aristocratic connections and the family connections are very important. So those, those needed to be preserved, but they, the, the business acumen 
particularly with the capital leg of the stool, was not there. So they had to be moved into things like the, like the market side, where they could, they could have that role. Right. So before we get to it in, in the weeds of this, I, I think it might be useful for listeners if you explain the profiler. Oh, okay. So the profiler, the profiler is, is actually sort of deceptively simple. What you do is, instead of ask people, are you smart? Do you know what you're doing? Which, I mean, even I couldn't answer that question, right? And I'm supposed to know, right? And I guess what I've learned over the years is, is we, don't, we don't really know ourselves. And we weren't, you know, it's, we, we didn't evolve to have self-knowledge. It's probably what, what keeps us going every day, right? So, <laughs> so... <laughs> so so we do not have self-knowledge and we cannot count on that. So what we do is we give people a sort of online, it, it's kind of like a Harvard case study, but not really. We give them an online business case that they have to log into, but they don't read it, they do it. So we say, okay, you're the CEO, read all the material that a CEO would normally read. And we, we figured out what that would be. Very small select set of, of material, the letter from the chairman, some financial information, all publicly available. We sanitize it so they don't know what company it is. And we give them five years of a company's history. And it's always a company that's gone through a kind of a, a speed bump in the road and recovered. And we, we, we have a sort of proprietary method of picking the case. And then we sanitize it so the guilty are preserved or hidden. And we change the pictures, but we make it look like a real annual report and a real financial you know, report. And we say, read year one and answer these questions about it. What do you think is going to happen? Tell us what you think the stock price is going to be um, in terms of their plans for the new products. What do you, are they going to succeed or do you see a problem? You know, just, just predict what's going to happen. We find that people with high expertise in the triangle always know what the stock price is going to be or if it's going to go up or down and by what percentage. And if the plans of the senior leadership for new products or new capital projects are going to fizzle out or are going to have legs and other things, right? And they use all kinds of clues, like profits per employee, and all kinds of things in the financials. Then we ask them to say, okay, in the data set we gave you, click on the things that, that gave you a hint as to what's going to happen. So they click on the bits of information that told them, like, why they said that. And we score each bit of information as to what category of or classification of information it is on the triad. Does it have to, does it inform you about the market, the supply side, or the capital strategy, or the capital environment? And what we find is that people who don't do well in these predictions tend to have a blind spot in one or two of the legs persistently. Mm -hmm. And that's what the heat map is. We do a heat map at the end. 
And, and then we have them score their confidence. And typically people who are, um, when, when there's a lot of information missing or there's a lot of spin in the annual report and people confidently predict something, um, they tend to, like they, they buy the story, they tend to be more at the novice end. Mm. A person who's more expert will miss what's missing and even though they may make a more accurate prediction, they will be less confident because they sense that the quality of the information being provided is not good. Mm. That's, I, I guess, to sort of like follow up on that, since now people understand what the profiler is, one of the things that leapt out at me, like there, there were many amazing stories, like the, the two stories you just told, but also like others in, the, in your publications where you come in and you give the profiler and then the company actually adopts the recommendations, right? Which is, is I, I've done a bit of consulting. That's really hard. <laughs> um, <laughs> how do you do it? You know, it depends on who you ask. One of our principals, Dr. David Lehman, said, we just wait until they've tried everything else and they're desperate. I, I don't actually think we do that. I think he has a very significant reputation in business himself. He's He's been a senior leader for GE and Caterpillar and Sunoco. I think he, what, I think we have worked with a lot of companies and word gets around. I think that we don't take any job that comes our way. Mm. You know, we, we, people will come to us and say, you know, I, I need you to fix this. And we say, well, let's look at it and we'll, we'll see what we think. And we look, we look at the situation and usually we do our process of, of looking at the whole situation. And we usually find two things. Number one, the problem is usually in a different place than they think. Mm. And usually the upside potential is greater than they think. Because we do a market-facing analysis of, of their position among their competitors. And then we sort of we have a tool where we can move the constraint and show them where they could be if the constraint were moved. And then we say, you know, we think that this is really the problem. So I'm trying to think of an example that that's not too controversial. Because we have walked away from some, and we were right, so that's why I won't bring it up. The Sometimes, for example, um, the like uh, we worked with a drug company, and they believed that they needed more drugs in their pipeline. And we looked at it and we said, you know, actually you have a lot of leads in your pipeline, but your bench chemistry is very inefficient. And you're thinking about laying off chemists. We don't think you should do that. We think you should automate some of the bench chemistry. You know, this was the precursor to deep learning, AI, and in eliminating all the leads that were duds. And taking those same chemists and having them work on the leads further down the line when you've kind of got gotten all the the bad ones worked out and automating some of the early bench chemistry and then you can get to cut to the chase quicker and that that did solve the problem did you have to do a strategic rehearsal for that or was it just like a recommendation? Well, that was a recommendation and then we did a strategic rehearsal mm -hmm. because the bench chemists had to get used to the idea that that they had to let go a little bit and be 
you know, more at the end and not so much in the very beginning. You know, spend their whole career on one molecule. Yeah, that kind on. of stuff. Yeah. Another time we worked with the Midwest Foundry. They believed that their problem was China or, you know, all of Asia with the with the the small whatevers, the small castings. And we said, there's a couple things that are never done overseas. Why not get really good at that? The multi-ton castings. You guys are, you know, third generation foundry men. You, You do this in your dreams. You understand molten metal like, you know, no one else. And you could probably do it as a fine art. And nobody is gonna do a a casting the size of a small house overseas and ship it on a boat. I mean, you know, the customer will pay a premium to have it done two miles away and they need it next week. And you guys can do that. So now they have a specialty business doing that. And their scrap rate defies the law of physics. It's so small. And and we're like, we don't even know how they do it. But that was definitely a strategic rehearsal to get them to think that way. Yeah, so I I wanted to ask this later on in the conversation, but since we're here, I think it might be it might be really cool for you to tell the story. It t- it turns out that I actually came across this story without knowing that it was you in Gary Klein's Power of oh, Intuition, oh yeah. right? Uh-huh. And then I I saw it again in in the chapter in in Business Expertise in the Oxford Handbook. And it is a remarkable story, and I would love to have you retell it here. Okay. Well, it, it's a very interesting story. It, I thought it was going to be my Waterloo, honestly. It was, it was really quite a situation. We, huh. went to, we went to this foundry, and these people were um, making these castings. And the place was, I mean, there was little fires on the floor to keep people warm. And the place was incredibly heavily in debt and the owner was being very financially irresponsible he was he was doing some bad things with debt he was taking out personal loans and using them to run the business and he he had been very successful in making small castings for years and he had i guess a few foundries and he was you know we knew him he was a personal acquaintance and he really wanted help with this whole thing. And he had way too much overhead. He had a fancy office down the road, etc. And we we went in there and we went to the shop floor and we saw all these people making as many castings a day as they could using the patterns that they had with no idea as to whether or not there were orders for them. And then they would put them all in a big hot pile and you couldn't tell what was in them because they're all covered with sand. And then they're all cleaned up, trucked and cleaned up at another facility. And the, when they're trucked to the other facility, the other facility has no idea what they're getting and if it's needed for any orders that they need to ship. So I thought, wow, these people are worried about losing their jobs, so they're trying to look as busy as possible. So then we started asking them, how do you know what to work on? Do you have an ERP system? They had never seen a, a graph before. They would never used, they'd used the ERP system to print labels, to ship things. They didn't know anything about how it does planning or anything. 
and they had a, a room full of people answering the phone with customers who were yelling at them, where's my order? And that was all that their whole job. And they had a lot of overtime to try to catch up all weekend. And I thought, what do they need the overtime for? They have a huge pile of stuff. If they just made what they needed to, they wouldn't need the overtime. And they didn't have any money to pay for this stuff. And things got really bad when, you know, the, the internet provider and the, the, the supplier stopped delivering. So we'd have to drive a check to them. So they turned it on for another day and it was bad. Mm. So, so I said, let's, let's make a strategic rehearsal so that we can figure out how, how to do this. So the first thing we did is we made a card sort where we had on each card a representation of every function and every operation in the entire foundry system, all the buildings. And we said, arrange these the way the foundry runs now. And it was a big mess. There was cards on the table, on the floor, over across the room, etc. And then I said, okay, now arrange the cards the way it should be. And they actually did a very good job. So I thought, okay, there's hope here. Huh. So I said, okay, we are going to do a, a strategic rehearsal. We're going to gamify this, and we're going to run the factory, both all the buildings. We're going to get everybody here, and we're going to do it in miniature the way it ought to be done. And you have one non-negotiable goal, two non-negotiable goals. One is that you're going to use the ERP system to know when things are due and nothing gets made unless it has an order and how you're going to know is the ERP system. You're going to use that to generate the routers to pull the product through the process. And the second thing is that you're not going to make anything that you can't sell and it has to be on time. And if it's not on time, the customer gets it for free, but the customer gets it. End of story. Yeah, it was pretty wow. And then we used uh, a 3D printer to make replicas of all the patterns. And we used a polymer sand that they could use to make make the molds. And the polymer sand, we made it so that it started to fall apart after an hour. So they, they, they had to be on time because it would start to crumble. And they cheated. They, they snuck water in, you know, because they... they <laughs> Because <laughs> there's a binder for the polymer sand, so we had to dye the water green Ooh. so that we'd know whether or not they were cheating. And it was quite an exercise. And and we set it all up, and they, the first day was a disaster, of course, and they replicated all the problems that they were having. And they sat down and looked at it, and the two, the guys from one building and the other building said, started pointing fingers at each other. I said, no, we're not going to do that. We're going to figure out why this happened. You know, nobody dies in a strategic rehearsal. We figure it out. These are toys, right? So the guy said, well, by the time you got me my stuff to clean up and ship, it was already too late. And he said, but I, but I, you know, I made it, you know, blah, blah, blah. He said, yeah, but if you started it in this game period, it's already too late. 
you know, I needed it the following game period. You starting it in that game period, it's already too late. I need lead time, basically. And he said, you know, I never thought of that. So the next day they came in, and they rearranged everything, and they set it all up, and they did an amazing job. And then I said, okay, now we're going to do this in real life. And we're going to start with, we're going to, there's no truck that takes all the stuff that you guys made in the one building to the other building. The truck now lives in the end building, and they come and get only what they need. So you better only make what they need because they're coming with their customer list and they're going to order it. And they're not taking anything else. You have to live with whatever you made that nobody wants. All this hot, molten stuff. Okay? <laughs> doesn't go on the truck. Right. Okay? So if Lonnie doesn't need it, it doesn't go. He's going to come shopping, you know? And the truck does not live here anymore. It's not yours. They're like, oh, oh no. <laughs> And then what so, so then they said, well, we don't know what the real lead times are for the, you know, between the stages. You know, in, in this exercise, you know, I said they're all a week. They're all a week. They're a week as of today. As you start making stuff, you can refine it down because it's always less than a week, right? But for, no, but for now in the ERP system, in real life, everything's a week. Every, every stage of the process. Good Lord. And they said, oh, okay. And I said, we're going to print out a to-be-cast report every morning that shows you not only what you're, gonna, what you're supposed to do, but what everyone is doing. So you have visibility into the entire process, what everybody's doing from beginning to end. And they did it. <sighs> Insane. Yeah. I I sent this story to a friend in manufacturing and he was blown away because you effectively taught them the principles of just-in-time manufacturing, right? Yes, manufacturing. yes. And, and you didn't really teach them. You didn't give them a lecture. You didn't, you know, give them like, oh, here's what the theory is. And you just place constraints on them, watch them fail, get them to argue with each other. And then they worked it out for themselves from first they principles. Did. That's yeah. insane. It's like... How? <laughs> well, and not only that, but they, they, they were extraordinary. They had an extraordinary understanding of casting and mold making. So I said, we're going to take advantage of that. So when the, when the casting is rejected in, in the other building, you know, in Lonnie's building, it comes back here and you, you're all going to stand around and look at it because you need to know you need to see it. And when, when they all stood around and looked at it, they said, oh, we won't do that again. Yeah. Oh. You know, yeah, well, you know, I thought if we did, if we put the chills in, in that place, that might happen. I'm like, what are they talking about? And then I realized it doesn't matter. They see something that is not available to us. And b bringing the casting back, they, they get the feedback on their decisions like within a day that they need. And so the, the loop is closed. And that's exactly what needed to happen. 
So we were able to use the expertise that they had probably developed over a lifetime, you know, even, you know, at their father's knee that needed to make the business successful. So here, here's my conclusion to this story. Mm. We visited them later and I walked in, you know, they, they borrowed money so they could buy the factory, this, this business, and they own it. And I walked in and I said to one of the kids, so how are things going? And it was like a Thursday. He said, well, we broke even at 3 o'clock. And from here on out, it's profit. Oh, my and God. I know. It's like. <laughs> it's a kid. And he knows exactly the break even point. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and it's like, oh. it's like nothing. It's like nothing. He goes, yeah. And, you know, tomorrow we, we, <laughs> we do all the maintenance. We shut down everything and we do all the preventative maintenance. And, and how are you? You know, and I was like. <laughs> If, if, so when I was reading that story, I was thinking to myself, you know, in, in the late 70s to the 80s, there was this great fear of Japan, right? Because of lean manufacturing. And it was a lot, yeah. lot of like papers written in the business literature and in, in organization management as well. But like how like, oh, you know, it's organizational tacit knowledge. We can't possibly, somehow we can't learn lean manufacturing. Only when Toyota takes over the plant in, you know, the GE, uh, is it GE mm-hmm. plant? GM, sorry. Did, did, they, did the workers finally learn it? And here you yeah. are. Right, coming into like a, a bunch of people who you say like has never seen a graph in their lives, right? They're no, not exactly they raise, educated. They, yeah, they raise goats at home. Yeah, I mean, they yes, yeah, yeah. And and in your engagement, you got them to construct from first principles, right? Lean manufacturing for themselves, and then they 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 bought made did well enough to buy the factory, and now they run it. Like, yeah. this is insane. Yeah, <laughs> more people need to know about this. Oh. But but I but I think that there's a lesson here, which is, you know, it's in our human DNA to figure this stuff out, and it's it's you know they they under they really had a lot going for them in the fact that they understood their customer and they understood their products and once they understood when I, ERP they, they do ERP for other companies now. They realized that this was an incredible tool for them to be more efficient. And they also said, you know, they got their scrap rate down below anybody in the industry. And I said to them, you know, the ladies who answer the phone when the customers call, they're gone. There's no customer service department anymore because nobody calls. And I said, how did you get your scrap rate down so low? And this goes to the cognitive agility question. They said, well, what you taught us is that we were so wrong about everything that we, what else are we wrong about? So maybe the scrap rate, which everybody had accepted had to be a certain scrap rate given weather and chance and physics and the way metal reacts. Maybe that's not right either. So we took pictures of every casting we had that we had to scrap and we realized that there was a pattern to it just like there's a pattern to everything else and it was actually that certain customer parts were more likely to be scrapped than others and that if we told the customers you got to fix your pattern or we're not going to make your part because it's bringing down our scrap rate or bringing up our scrap rate we could have a lower scrap rate we would offer to fix the pattern because we thought we knew what was wrong with it 
for a fee, but we didn't want their... So they're telling companies like Caterpillar and Goodyear, your pattern's not good enough for us. Because <laughs> oh, we have a... Good, and here's the evidence. Here's the digital evidence. We've been doing an analysis, and these companies pay them to fix their patterns. Oh, my goodness. Wait, so... And- <laughs> before... I want to get back to the, 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 the cognitive science behind why strategic rehearsals work in a bit. But before we, we go there, you, you, you brought up something, you know, you brought up cognitive agility, which is a major part of mm-hmm. your work. For those listeners uh, who, who don't know, Dr. DiBello in her original you know, paper about business expertise said it's basically two things. It's the triad mental model, but it's also this construct called cognitive agility. Could you talk a bit about cognitive agility? Cognitive agility is basically the ability to change your mental model when the to know that the world or the situation has changed and to to adjust your your mental model to accommodate that instead of rigidly applying what you've always done now it's it's not simple to do that you know you can't will yourself to be different but you can say to yourself what i'm apply the expertise that i'm applying to the situation is not working so I need to, kind of like what the guys in the foundry did, I need to collect data, I need to query the situation, I need to interrogate my situation to see what, what an alternative, equally viable theory of the situation might be. And that's cognitive agility. And if you do it often enough, it, you get fast, just, you become an expert at that. So you become faster, better able to query your environment for alternative views of it. So it's not a fixed trait. No, I don't. Some of my colleagues and I debate this. I do <laughs> not believe it's a fixed trait. There's no question that some people are better at it than others. But what I've noticed is that people who are different anyway, like maybe they're, you know, they've, they've had to adapt to a different culture or they're gay or transgender, or they've had to fit into a world that doesn't fit, doesn't accept them easily, they tend to be more cognitively agile. I mean, look at some of the people who have been masterminds of major inventions like Turing or Michelangelo. They weren't normal people in other ways. Mm -hmm. So they had to be more agile just to adapt, right? So... That would tell me it's acquired because they had to acquire it. Yeah. And what I've noticed is that people can acquire it and do acquire it when they have to. How would you, well, I guess this is a two-part question, right? How would you know if you're cognitively agile or cognitively rigid? And what would you, should you do about it, assuming that, you know, you want to get better at this? Because this is a fairly important skill in business. Well, I, I, I guess how I would know that somebody is cognitively rigid is that they tend to always take the same job all the time or the same type of job all the time so that their models are never challenged. And they try to, like if I have an employee who instead of doing the job that's required, he or she will try to change the job into what they can do. And I think a lot of people do that. A more cognitively agile person will say, 
Well, this is interesting and kind of fun. I've never done this before, and I don't really have the skill set, but I'd like to have the skill set. And if they feel psychologically safe enough, they will expand their horizons a bit. How would you? And those, yeah, and pe- yeah I, I was going to say, and I think, I think employers have to be willing to enable that. Huh. Yeah, I was sort of reflecting on your work and thinking that if you didn't have the ability to create a strategic rehearsal, um, because the strategic rehearsal in many ways sort of overcomes even cognitively rigid people, right? Because you you, you provoke the state of failure, this disassembly of their mental models, and they lose confidence in it, and then they are willing to learn. But if you don't have access to a strategic rehearsal, because you've said in the past as well, it's really hard to come up with strategic rehearsals, then I was like, you know, what, what can you do if, if I have an employee who is like sort of cognitively rigid and mm-hmm. tries to wave away evidence? Well, I, I think, you know, one of the things I, I realized that's a, a constraint of our company is that, you know, we're, we, I think we are all pretty cognitively agile. And I don't think we were born that way. I think designing strategic rehearsals actually made us that way. You know, creating and gamifying businesses has made us more cognitively agile. It's like a collateral effect, right? I think people could do that. I think that if people could role play or gamify situations, even in a minor way, they could increase their own cognitive agility. Just play around with different approaches to the same problem. Yeah, cognitive agility is an obsession of mine because, like, my background is primarily startups, right? Small businesses, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and and my history is I I, I my, what I'm good at is I if you throw me in a random Southeast Asian country and you get me to run an engineering office, right? I can do that, and and I did that. You know, the last job that I did was in Vietnam, and it was like a foreign culture, foreign language, and. And I think the biggest shock, right, was my realization that there's no rule of law. Like, there, there is no rule of law, right? There, the contracts are just a piece of paper, right? It's the relationships mm-hmm. and the understanding that in, in the business that matters, right? And that was a huge shock for me. And ever since then, I go into a situation going like, okay, what's going on here? Like, I, I, mm-hmm. I should not assume anything. And right, it drives me right. nuts when I have a subordinate or I'm working with someone in the business and they don't have this. They're always trying to apply or trying to fit the situation into some model. And I'm like, no, just let go of the model and try to see reality as it is, right? Because it would just hinder you. And mm-hmm. so when I, re- when I read your, you know, your description of cognitive agility, it was like lightning. Um, I was like, yes, this, this is the thing that I've been sort of like irked throughout my entire right. sort of business experience. Right. Well, um, you probably got became much more agile as a result, right? Yeah. Yeah. Probably. What we would do is we would make a game, you know, with our with our platform, our gaming platform that would allow people to do that. Go to oh. Vietnam, run a startup and have everything go wrong and make and say, "Oh, by the way, you have to make it work." <laughs> That's non-negotiable. <laughs> oh, that's so interesting. Like simulations as a way out of this. 
I, I yeah. want to loop back a little to like the business triad, right? So one way, and we're going to talk about this in a bit, like you accelerate business expertise through strategic rehearsals. But how do these great, you know, this, these business superstars get good in the real world? You know, what differentiates them from those who, who just, you know, are one-trick ponies? Probably what you just talked about. They've had a lot of failures. Huh. And they learned from them and they were, you know, drastically disequilibrated by dashed expectation and they had to learn that it does it's not always gonna go the way they thought those are the funnest people to work with one thing i've noticed though is that sometimes people don't learn from trial and error or they learn the wrong lessons yeah Um, well there's that yeah (laughs) they overfit right they conclude something that then like prevents them from the way i put it is that it reduces the set of like possible moves in, yeah. in space right and 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 that's always bothered me like like how do you know if you're drawing the right lessons from your experience when you're doing these trial and error cycles in the real world well there is there is probably as you i mean i could see it with you you have to have a certain amount of social bravery to to get back on the horse right leo you could have learned from your experience to just never do startups again yes and you didn't you you said you know this isn't going to stop me from doing this again i'm good at this you know you had this basic resilience and and to be fair, you know, I, I was the same way, you know, especially in the early days. I'm I'm not sure that I'm not still the only woman in my field. So I just never let it get in my way, you know. And there's there's definitely situations or times when I I remember once somebody saying to me, you know, what's it like to be the only woman who does this or whatever? And I remember saying, how would I know? I've never been a man. <laughs> you know, like, what do I have to compare it to? I just do my thing and march forward. You know, I mean, and, and it's not like there's a lot of men doing this. So I just, I think you just have to say, well, that didn't work. And try something else and just have the process confidence to, to do it. And I think some people don't have that. And I... I I think I try with employees and colleagues to create a psychologically safe milieu to like, you know, I had a, I had an intern yesterday call me and say, I broke the environment, you know, this poor, this poor woman, you know, I know you wanted to use this for an event, but I broke it. I said, well, we'll use the other one. And I said, but you should probably try to fix it because you could learn a lot from trying to fix it. And we'll just use another one. And she was, I don't know what she thought would happen, but I realized you have to do that. You have to be that that kind of a leader because you, you want people to treat you that way. You want that kind of world, I guess. And that's what we all have to do. Yeah. This leads into one of the questions that I had going in, which is, you've done all this work on business leaders and business expertise, right? How has that affected your practice as a business person? Well, we we actually own four businesses. In fact, you know, I actually also have another business, the, you know, Applied Cognitive Sciences Labs, which owns our, all the technologies that, that, 
that our science has resulted in. And we're trying to scale that. So how does, affect, how does this affect our businesses? Well, I guess it's made me realize that, you know, Gary Klein says I'm the only person he knows that's both an academic and a business person. And I don't know if that's true or not, because obviously I don't publish enough to be an academic. That was what attracted me to your work, actually. Like, I was like, your publication history is quite sparse. Wait a minute, yeah. you've been doing business for the last decade, two decades. Yeah, yeah. yeah. but I did just publish something recently. But the, 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 you know, the idea is that, I don't know how it affected me. I guess, I guess it's made me feel, particularly at this point in my career, that business is very uh, fluid, it's very dynamic, and that there aren't any real rules to it, and that they're changing all the time. And right now, what we're trying to do with ACSI Labs, for example, mm. is take everything we've learned, put it in a platform, and democratize accelerated learning. Mm. And I think that ought to be done. And, you know, I think that what I've learned about business is that you have to be willing to change and pivot a lot. Mm. And we've done that quite a bit. We've been quite big and we've been quite small. And then we've, we've also had several businesses running at a time. We own an interest in a Colombian coffee company right now because we saw that we saw a company called Innova Kit that trains farmers to, to in, in digitized supply chain management. And we thought, well, that's really cool. Let's bring that to the U.S. and to the U.K. So five of us got together and formed this company. You can buy Well, you can't. But eventually you'll be able to buy the coffee online. It, it cuts out the middleman, and the, the farmers make a lot more money, mm. and they're high up in the supply chain, and 50% of them are women, and mm. they're taught modern methods like blockchain technology and we're actually doing a big promotional concert at the end of the month at the hollywood bowl to promote the coffee oh, nice where, yeah where where can they where can listeners in the u.s well it's in the UK? it's it's armorperfecto.com is the coffee we'll include it in the show notes and but the point is that we realized it's a business that ought to be done so we're at the point now where we're doing businesses that we can do that ought to be done like more than, you know, we're, we're, we're trying to have socially responsible businesses that are profitable, not charities, that, that are technologies, sciences, and approaches to business that, that the world should have. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's how it's affected me. Because there's so many badly run businesses, and it's become very offensive to me. Let's, let's double click on that uh, for a moment, because... Before this call, and we have like 30 minutes left, so we should d d deal with this first, right? You, were, you said you were really passionate about democratizing this technology and making it more available to other, the, the whole strategic rehearsal in virtual worlds. Could you talk a bit about that? Like, you know, what made you feel that way? And what do you hope to do with the current state of the technologies that you've developed? Well, most of the, the only reason that we've had the career that we've had is because most businesses are not well run and they waste a lot of money and and there's a lot of harm that's done it, it's it's you know during this you know during the subprime mortgage crisis a lot of people lost a lot of lost their jobs you know it lost their homes you know the, it, there's a lot of harm done when businesses are run badly 
And what C- how CEOs have responded, the less ethical ones, is when they negotiate their job, they just have a better severance package. Mm-hmm. Because they know that they may not do a good job and they need to be paid several million to be fired. And th- this is really not the way to solve this problem. So we said to ourselves, we do know how to make businesses more successful. And we do know how to make people who are very anxious about their ability to keep their jobs, keep up, and reskill themselves. We know from the, from the foundry that we can help them. We know that we can help senior executives because we do it all the time. But we also know that we can help workers who are not that ambitious, who, who just want to keep their jobs and who want to be reskilled and adapt. So we started the first game we designed. We, we have a platform, FutureView, that you, know, you can make mega worlds with it to solve huge problems. Like we have a client that's managing 11 mines, a portfolio of 11 gold, silver, and copper mines. And, you know, it, it streams in the stock market and all the financials, and you can do all this what-if stuff on, you know, cycle-based scheduled maintenance and equipment spare factors and stuff. It's huge, right? That's an expensive what-if strategic rehearsal in a virtual world in the cloud. That's not for everybody, <laughs> but it does make it possible to um, run those businesses, which mm-hmm. couldn't be done another way, I think. So those those types of businesses of, of managing a lot of disparate portfolios and assets that are all over the world, you can co-locate digital twins in our platform and run them in a central way and have everybody log in as avatars and meet mm-hmm. and make major decisions about them. So we're doing that at the very senior level. But we also have what we call micro-worlds, which are where people can just learn to become better team members, better product leaders, better product innovators, better at anticipating volatile market changes, better engineers, and even better you know, at diverse, managing diversity in the workplace. Those, those mini worlds, I mean, they're, they're not that many, actually. They're, they're virtual worlds that are the size of small cities. But, but you can, but for us, they're mini. They're not, you know, two miles deep and, you know, 50 square miles. But people really like those. And we had one that we call Max, where you can learn to be an agile leader and you can learn to anticipate volatile consumer markets people were addicted to that Mm -hmm. they would play it five and six times because you it's like tetris you can win different ways and you can level up but more than that you can understand how your mistakes lead to a lower return on sales It, it draws connects those dots for you like even the way you run a meeting that's incredible you can alienate your staff so that they're still nice to you, but they don't tell you information that you might need to avoid a, a, a slightly disastrous business uh, decision. So it's a really fun way, and we did the study, and you know we actually built that to do a, an academic study, and we found out that in six hours, people could get three to five years of expertise in that area 
And we can make one of those with our platform in a few weeks. Mm. And we're trying to adapt the platform so that companies can make their own so that they don't need us to do it. The accelerated learning grammar, we're trying to codify it so that you wouldn't have to be a cognitive scientist or you wouldn't have to be a cognitive scientist who understands accelerated learning. You would just have to follow the wizard as you structure your content. And then when it wasn't structured in a way that would result in accelerated learning, like it's too preachy or it's too much instruct, it's like too instructor led, it would push back and tell you, no, put an activity here. Don't put an instruction here. So we're working on that. But the idea is those seats should cost a hundred bucks. And anybody who's worried about losing their skill should be able to just practice stuff they're yes. anxious about. Yeah. That's incredible. Where can people follow along or subscribe to updates for this? Well, thefutureviewplatform.com is the website for that. I'll put and it in the show we, notes. Yeah, and we have licensees who are, we have licensees and partners in Cyprus, Brisbane, and Colombia, the country. You know, we, we're, we have partners all over the world who are selling that. Oh, that's incredible. I guess, okay. So I think this might be a good time to go into the cognitive science behind why the strategic rehearsal okay. works. The fun um, part. Yeah, the fun part. Before the call began, we were talking about the Piagetian and the Vygotskian approaches to expertise. And maybe that's a sort of a fruitful way to start to sort of set the stage for like why the strategic rehearsal even works. Okay, well, let's start. A little bit more abstract than that. Sure. The The reason that the strategic rehearsal works is because it's very Piagetian and Vygotskian, but what we're always operating with is a dominant framework, a sort of theory of the crime. So when you're at work and you're doing your job, you're kind of on autopilot. And that's because your brain has become very efficient once you become good at something, you have a what, what Piaget would call a schema mm. for, for doing it that becomes somewhat automated, which saves a lot of energy, so you don't have to think about it so much. The, the shape of your schemas is largely determined by where you work, your education, your environment. You're always adapting to your environment. So people who work for the same company tend to have similar schemas similar ways of looking at the situation and they become inculcated to a shared view of things. So, you know, we'll get into the underlying theoretical mechanism of that. I studied that for decades, okay, how that happens and so on. What we're doing with a strategic rehearsal is we're interfering with that mm. because once that becomes established, you can't really say, oh, I'm not going to do that anymore. It's not really possible. When I was a professor, I used to write on the chalkboard some phrase, and I used to tell my students, okay, look at that phrase and don't read it. Nobody can do that, <laughs> right? Yeah. yeah. And yet we're not born reading. We have to learn how to do it. It's the same thing, right? You can't undo something that's already there. But a strategic rehearsal can do that. And that's where Piaget and Vygotsky come in. 
How that got formed is that basically that adaptive schema is adaptive. You developed it through a series of participating in your environment, and it got reinforced because as human beings, we will always learn and become solidified around an approach that is our, our brains see as critical to our survival. So we always learn stuff that, that we as organisms see as, as helpful to our survival. So we look to see what everybody else is doing, what's mm-hmm. succeeding as opposed to what's failing, and we, we're very goal-driven. Okay, so that's why you don't want to incentivize the wrong things in a workplace, because people will get very good at those. And we know that from all sorts of studies that people will, will develop the, the skills and sometimes extraordinary capabilities that are critical to their survival, even in a workplace, even in a social group. And what we do in a strategic rehearsal is we, we build an environment that is coming at you very fast and has what we call a lot of symbolic density. It's got a lot of the same triggers as your workplace so that all of those schemas are, are running provoked. on... Yes, they're provoked and they're very active. And then we, may, we force you to make a decision every few seconds. So, for example, when you're playing one of our strategic rehearsal games, you're making, you're playing like um, a whole quarter of business in 15 minutes. Bang, 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 right? 60 decisions constantly, and you're doing it as a group. So all of the group dynamics and the individual dynamics, and you, you have literally no time to stop and think, oh, gee, should we really be being this stupid? No. So the autopilot takes over, and you replicate all the bad habits at work, even though you know better. You just spent three days in a seminar making a plan for next year, and you know that this is not it. <laughs> it makes it no anyway. difference. You do it anyway, and you can't stop. It's, it's sad, Amazing. but it's funny. Yeah. And sometimes the company will replicate its declining stock price and, you know, backlog and every to the to the dollar, because we we track everything minutely every few minutes and we display it up on a big board, what they're doing. And they look at it and they and they're falling apart. And at the beginning of the day, to be fair, we say this is going to be a bad day. But it will be OK. We're all in it together. Everybody's safe. Nobody's ever died. And tomorrow you're going to be amazing. And they go, yeah, yeah, yeah. We're going to prove you wrong. And I go, okay, you're going to be the first people in my entire career out of 8,000 people that's going to, going to win. Great. Doesn't happen. At the end of the day, they're like, are you sure we're going to do well tomorrow? I go, yeah. And they go, well, don't touch our stuff because we know what we're going to do tomorrow and just leave it alone. They cover it up with sheets. You know, they, they really, they really are. If they find it very hard to stop. Yeah. Right. They go, we go, it'll be okay. We're not going to touch anything. Go home, go home. We touch everything. We rip it all up. We tear it down to zero. And we set it all up so they can start over from scratch the following day. <laughs> they come in 
And they, they just astonish themselves. They go, what were we thinking yesterday? Why did we ever do that? And what happens is when you're that disequilibrated, when everything you do does not work and you have a sleep cycle in between, you're really unlearning. And de- the, these, these myelinated sort of autopilots are really basically unlearned. And their autopilot status is degraded. So then they're kind of released to, to get the better ideas that they actually already have. Oh. And they, they have a sort of new autopilot. So, and then they spend the day practicing that, seeing that it will work. And then they have like a new approach that they've practiced and they, because they do it together, they go back to work and they can just hit the ground running. Is there a shared session where they reflect together? Or is it they just go home and then they sleep and then... Well, it varies. Lots of times they have a whole new language. Like, you know, we worked with a, a medical device company and they had a device for aneurysms and vascular, you know, stuff. And... They, they had to actually invent um, new aneurysm treatments and stuff that were very similar to what they were doing. And that was a physical strategic rehearsal. So they had a, we had a body, you know, a wooden body with a vascular system, and they had to do all that. And they, the name of the new product was, I think it was called Sapphire in the game. Mm. And they actually released a product by that name in real life. Wow. And they had the the whole experience became a shared historic reference for them. So they would say like, you know, remember when we did Sapphire or remember when we did this, and they they would use it as a reference. Right. For, yeah. I, I think at this point we should loop back to what you told me before we started recording about Piaget and Vygotsky. Mm. Maybe start out with Piaget and and you know what he discovered and how that plays into your current work. Well, what actually I was trained as a Piagetian in cognitive science, you know, in, in the early days. In fact, when I was working at IBM in the cognitive sciences labs, I worked for a Piagetian and we were trying to apply Piagetian theory to expertise. And as I explained to you before, Piaget was a genetic epistemologist. And he believed that levels of expertise, or not really expertise, but levels of functioning emerged almost like in a biological function. And I believe that because of when he was doing his work, which was in the 20s and 30s, and there wasn't a lot of you know, domain-specific expertise, he didn't really recognize the impact of the boundaries between domain-specific experts that all educated people were the same, in a way. That scientific thinking was a monolith. Mm-hmm. And he, he saw it that way. So you went from being a concrete operations child, and you evolved over time to being a scientific thinker. And it was a developmental path that was endogenous. It happened from within. And it didn't really explain the fact that a physicist does not understand biology, for example. But he didn't really worry about that so much. And maybe it wasn't even true in his lifetime that there was that much of a difference 
the way there is now. People weren't as much a specialist. So Vygotsky was very different. He was more top-down. He believed that all knowledge was formed by culture, mm. that you inherit knowledge. He called it scientific knowledge, but he really meant, he didn't mean it scientific knowledge in the sense that you and I would mean it. Any knowledge that was socially created as a system of meaning, you know, relations between objects, that this means this, or systems of principles, he would consider a scientific concept. So a philosophy or a social system, all of that was a candidate for a scientific system for Vygotsky. Now he was, you know, a Marxist, etc. So he was a little bit different. And he believed that you're shaped by your social environment. And what you do at first is you memorize through language and you encode through language as a kind of placeholder all of these so-called scientific concepts, but you only have true understanding through a dialectical process of participation and activity and practice with other people. So let's take religion, like Catholicism. You would learn all your prayers and everything, but it wasn't until you participated in the rituals with other people that you would come to understand or appreciate spirituality. And it's the same with work practices. You would not really understand what it is to be uh, a craftsman until you actually practiced with other people through a dialectical process with others and shared meaning what it really means to understand these principles. But you would always have them as a linguistic placeholder first, so it's more top-down. The, the work that I did for my dissertation is that, it, is that expertise kind of meets in the middle. That, that Piaget, which had these functional invariants, which were the principles by which, or the mechanisms by which you move from one level to another, epistemologically, which are you assimilate the way you look at the world, it doesn't really fit, so you accommodate and kind of expand your repertoire or your schema, which is kind of an implicit theory. And then you, that the reason it doesn't work, that's a disequilibration. And then you reorganize your implicit theory to be more elaborate, right? Like the, like the baby and the grasping. That's um, right, yes. Could you say, could yeah. you describe that? Because T- I love tell that Tell that example. story. <laughs> Oh, it's amazing. <laughs> it makes me seem evil. So <laughs> so if you if you go to a baby and you know they they their first concept for Piaget is grasping, which is why we still use that word. And it's it's a reflex, but it's not like a like a knee-jerk reflex. It's it's your first malleable concept. So if you if the baby grabs your finger, it 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 says, "Oh, it's a finger." And it seems to find it interesting. But if you put two fingers, it looks surprised. <laughs> and then it, it has to add that to its repertoire. And then it squeezes a few times. And then you add three, and, it, and eventually you get all this, right? So the reason we use our hands so much is because we start with our hands, with everything. You know, appre- apprehensions. Wow. Yeah. 
And that's the part of our brain that manages our hands. It's huge because all of our our concepts start there. But the point is that for Piaget, that was concrete operations. And we understand everything concretely as young children. And then that becomes more abstract. But it's basically an internal evolution. And it's through activity like this that we get expanded. And it's accommodation, disequilibration, sorry, assimilation, disequilibration, accommodation, and reorganization to be a more refined system. I think those functional invariants are universal almost at the neural or single cell level. And I think that that still explains why the dialectic that Vygotsky liked to talk about works. I think those functional invariants are still operating in that dialectic. Which explains how you design the strategic rehearsal. Yes, and how we reorganize people's thinking. Yes. We, we take a Vygotskyan domain. We say, okay, you're thinking in a way that's not adaptive. And we're going to give you another way. It's, we're going to give you the opportunity to discover another way of thinking. Okay, but we're going to still let you have the old one. But through a process of dialectic exploration, trying to achieve a goal, which your brain is going to figure out is how you win, because that's your non-negotiable goal. Bogotsky always had what you call an adaptive goal, organizing everything. So in our strategic rehearsals, we always make it very clear there's only one goal. It's not going to change. There's no, there's no partial credit. There's no B plus here. You either get there or you don't. But you can get there lots of ways. There's not one rigid path. But you can't not get there. And they go through a process of exploring all the dia- dialectically all the different options, and they construct a new theory. Oh, could and you they ta- do it together. Could you talk a bit about the, the general form of a strategic rehearsal? So what I've been able to pick out from reading your work is that like one part of it is you do a knowledge extraction. You extract like the knowledge of expertise. Um, I think in business it's not really the case because you already have like you the triad, right? So you you you're just extracting like how it's expressed for that particular company. And then you I, I think you ex- extract the default model as well. And then there's some art, maybe there's some expertise that you have that tacit where you pick the cons- the goal, right? That allows them to construct the mental model that you want them to construct. Could you talk about that a bit? Well, we do, we do have a, that's why the platform is so important. We do have a, a technology or an approach that now is in the, in the software called the Dynamic Strategic Modeler, which my colleague David Lehman developed, which is basically the theory of constraints applied to the value proposition of the business. And what it does is it helps us set the goal. Real simple. Mm. And so what we do is we, we, there's a, there's several indicators in the company's, in any company's finances that indicate, um, how they're doing. It's like a blood test that you go to for the doctor. They look at different things, right? It's very similar with businesses. You have 13, I think you mentioned. Yes. Some Mm -hmm. podcasts. Yeah. 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 So we look at those and we look at those for all of their competitors in the same space. (laughs) And we say, okay, who's doing well and how are they different on those 13? 
And then we say, okay, what's constraining our client from doing well on, on these things? Is there a constraint? And then we find it. Sometimes it's in operations. Sometimes it's in, you know, so it's usually something pretty simple, like logistics, like, you know, the, the product is too far away from the dock that it gets shipped from, something like that. And we say, well, if the constraint were moved, what would the case be then? And we, we play around with that mathematically, and then we see what would happen. Like, do, would they have a bigger market? Do they have a big enough market? Would they be able to do price adjustments to make them more competitive? And then we set that as, you know, how big could they be? We just did this with a company in South Africa, and we realized that if they sold off some of their more low-performing assets, they would have the capital they need to really develop one asset that's actually worth quite a bit and has quite a bit of potential because it's close to a, a growing market. So we played around with that. And then we build a model, either in a virtual world or a physical model, depending on what's best for the client, so that they can discover the same thing we did. But we also make it possible to discover the bad things, like that there's all these other opportunities that they could buy in other countries that are not good for them. And we, you know, if they, they tend to be on an acquisition mm. trend, they will probably do that and it will probably be a disaster, but they'll learn that. Oh. And then they iteratively discover the right thing to do. If, but the goal does not change. We set the right. stock price, the market price, and the profit, everything that we've modeled as being possible. We say we know mathematically you can get here. You have to find out how to get there. Have you published this anywhere? Because it strikes me as like the 13 factors should be taught in every business school in the <laughs> world. No, we have not published the 13 factors. Yeah. Is that proprietary? Would you? It is now, yeah. yeah. You know, maybe someday Amazing. it won't be. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh my goodness! When when it comes to strategic rehearsals, and and you've not just done strategic rehearsals for business, right? Gary Klein has a a piece in I think in Psychology Today where you, you know it profiles like one of the interventions you did, which was mining safety. Uh huh. Um, and and. Your current work, uh, there was a recent uh, run of Max, a study done with, I think it was project management, and it was based uh -huh. off an extracted model of expertise in project management from IBM, right? Right, um, yeah. What other sort of uses for strategic rehearsals do you foresee in the future that you want to democratize and give access to people? I think diversity. I think people don't understand what, it, what diversity really is. Oh, could you um, say more about that? Well, you know, let, let me put it to you this way. In California, by law, we all had to, to, to take diversity and sexual harassment training. Every, every employer had to, had to do this. And what it was was, probably going to get in trouble for saying this, but what it was was an online course where you have to spend at least two hours reading these screens and clicking answers. Oh, well, dear. Yeah, so so I have a technology company. So what did I what what did my guys do? They they wrote a program that would do it, right? 
And I walk in, and I see all these screens blinking and, you know, doing this thing. <laughs> and a little timer, you know, that's making sure that it lasts exactly two hours. Because you have to do it for two hours. And I go, what is this? And they go, we're taking our sexual harassment and diversity training. They said, we're not going to actually read. Like, who would? We know from our own research we're not going to remember any of this. And I thought, it's true that even if they did read it, they would never remember it so what but we also know that we could put people in situations in a virtual world where we could give them very granular low density feedback because we do it now with leadership where they're in meetings they're in interactions they're talking to people and they say something that seems perfectly reasonable but they get a little red light and they get feedback about why that's a boneheaded thing to say And we know that, yeah, and we know that when we use those exercises for leadership training, that within 45 minutes, they're getting nothing but green. That that just that low talk about assimilation accommodation, people will automatically change their approach, just getting that low density feedback very quickly. They very quickly adapt to an appropriate model of behavior just from that kind of, and then, of course, you can get the detail about why that's appropriate, but, you know, being lectured never works. Yes. And, you know, probably within two hours, you'd have people who realize that's that just what, you know, the, what's insensitive, what's not cool, and their own, just have more insight into their own behavior, how it comes across. That's one thing. We know that the leadership thing has been very successful. Another is branding. You know, in other words, when you go to a Marriott or a Hyatt or some particular type of, of organization that provides a service, they have a particular service model. And very few employees really understand what that is. Like, what is it to work for this particular kind of company? So they... they they say the right things, but they don't really do it. They don't really provide the service the way that the company wants the customer to experience it. And when you're paying $500 a night for a hotel room, mm. you want everybody to understand what that means. Or even a nursing home or some other type of service provider. So training people on that type of thing or working with the elderly in a geriatric healthcare facility. So we're getting a lot of queries about that. And I think that it's because people realize practice makes perfect, really. You know, and I think that doing it online, especially even in a single player game, it's very private. It's not humiliating. You can make your mistakes. You can have a little bit more in-depth understanding about why people don't like you, you know. <laughs> you know, learn how to communicate a little bit more clearly, not be so such a jerk, that kind that, of thing. That is incredible. Well, so we're at time. Where can people find you and, and follow along as you release this? Like I personally would want to take the diversity training module, for example, in addition to like whatever else that might be relevant I think I think the best way to to find out when we're releasing stuff like that is is the uh, future the futureviewplatform.com website, but also wtri.com. You know, we 
WTRI is where we're doing all the research and development and the publications. Mm. The futureviewplatform.com company is the is the platform company which has the licensees and the partners. And so we probably I mean we we would have announcements in both places I guess is my point. That's awesome. But but all our research and cool, you know, brain scan stuff is on the WTRI website. And if you're a business and you want to contact, I mean, if, if somebody's a business and they want to contact you, where should they go? They should just contact me. My, you know, email. They, yeah, or LinkedIn. Yeah, mm. my email is, is, you know, Leah at WTRI or, or Al DeBello at uh, futureviewplatform.com. Sure. All right. Either one. And, you know, th- then I'm not hard to find. I don't yes. publish very much, but there's not a lot of people with my name, so. Well, thank you very much for your time. This was an honor and it was amazing. Thank you. <laughs> well, thank you. It was really fun. Thank you for taking such a, an interest in, in, in reading all that stuff. 